Path number one. It's springtime, 2222. Well, springtime is actually a misnomer. At one point, temperatures this hot would have been considered one of the hottest summertime heat waves on record. Now people all across North America are bracing for the sweltering summer that they know is ahead. The wildfire smoke that has blanketed much of the continent during the summers now starts early. Everyone knows that it will stay with them until November at least. There are almost no birds and little wildlife left in many places. The good news is the government never defaulted on its debt. The bad news is that the neoconservative populist leader that the nation has elected has chosen the route of printing money to pay for the nation's debts. This has led to hyperinflation. Now the dollar is basically worthless and most people find other means of exchange, essentially a barter economy. Riots are not uncommon events, protesting the austerity that is necessary as a result of the government's lack of resources. And this has been the case for as long as anyone can remember. Local law enforcement is spotty in places and local militias have sprung up to replace the police that can no longer protect people in many places. They call themselves militias. Others are beginning to call them warlords. Crime is at all-time highs in all of the worst-affected areas of the United States, as food insecurity has driven vast numbers of people to extremes. It all started to accelerate in the early 2020s. COP26 failed to set goals sufficient to meet the aim of limiting climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius. After that, nations just pointed the finger at other nations, claiming that if other nations wouldn't meet serious climate goals, neither would they. The industrialized nations of the world had agreed to curbs on greenhouse gases that would have spared the earth the worst ravages of climate change. But the U.S., led by a nationalist leader, pulled out of the climate accord. One by one, other nations followed suit. The consequences began to mount. First, the world began to see uncontrollable wildfires. By 2035, the polar ice caps had completely melted. The sun used to strike the highly reflective ice, and the heat was reflected back into space. Now it is simply absorbed into the oceans. The warming caused by these changes in turn melted the Arctic permafrost. All of this led to the numerous negative feedback loops that people are now so familiar with. These feedback loops have led to runaway global warming that can no longer be stopped. Path number two. It's springtime, 2222. Throughout North America, birds are singing and deer, squirrels, and other wildlife are abundant. The skies are much quieter than they once were. No longer are there the 150,000 jet and other flights that used to crisscross the Earth's skies every day. One still sees the occasional sleek, fuel-efficient airliner overhead, but not in the numbers that used to be there. Fuel-efficient, fast rail transit has largely replaced the flocks of fuel-guzzling jets that once filled the skies daily. The economy has been stable for as long as anyone can remember. Since the 2030s, all economies have been tied to gold, and the large deficits that once dogged the 21st century are a thing of the past. Following the transformations of society that came to the fore 200 years ago, there is more wealth. People at the bottom of the income spectrum can still live without food insecurity 
and CEO-to-worker pay disparities of over 250 to 1 are a thing of the past. There is virtually no homelessness. The idea that Americans would accept a land where over 500,000 people went to sleep each night homeless is now considered ludicrous. Children today know war only through their history classes. The last major one was over 100 years ago. Children also study in their history books about something called climate change that happened over 200 years ago. The Earth's temperature rose by a few degrees, but after a slow start, humanity banded together and changed their carbon-based economy to a non-carbon-based economy. That has led to the ethic of conservation that people live by today. Their fight to overcome this challenge, which all of humanity faced together, made them closer and helped people realize they were not enemies but all allies in working to take care of their planet and protect their environment. Their fight to overcome this challenge, which all of humanity faced together, made them closer and helped people realize they were not enemies but all allies in working to care for their planet and protect their environment. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 52, Where To Now, the final episode. It's been a long journey, but we finally made it from why Adam and mitochondrial Eve 200,000 years ago to now. And we have the historical background to be able to analyze what paths we're likely to take from here. We know, of course, that human societal systems are far too chaotic to predict what's going to happen with certainty. We've seen certain patterns repeating in history, however, and can understand the most likely paths a country or people might take. I look at using history to predict what might happen somewhat like walking down a trail in the woods. You know that the trail you're on will branch off into dozens of separate trails in the coming miles. Some of those trails are well-maintained and heavily traveled. Some are less obvious, and some are hard to find. You're likely to stay on one of the more heavily traveled trails, but which one? And who knows? You always may end up taking a rarely traveled offshoot. In the intro, we have two fanciful futures for us. We can't foretell the future with certainty, but we know that there's one course that will certainly bequeath all future generations lives of austerity and environmental disaster. How likely is that? In episode 43, we looked at how to use history to help evaluate which path a country is most likely to take. We termed our method present historical analysis. Step one in our method is to evaluate where a country stands on the inner wheel of history, that is, the dynasty rise versus dynasty decline and fall wheel. We've seen that societies in the stage of excess and decline, societies like the U.S. right now, who spend beyond their means, have a strong tendency to stress their ecosystems beyond its capacity to sustain itself and cause ecosystem collapse. This has been catastrophic for the Vikings in Greenland, for the Easter Islanders, and for the ancient Mayans, to name a few. 
the U.S. has taken deficit spending to heights never before seen in history. Just like the Easter Islanders, who were cutting down trees in numbers that were certain to denude their entire island of trees, we are now dumping carbon into our atmosphere at a rate we know will lead to runaway global warming if we don't change our course. We've seen the invulnerability illusion of far-right national groups with Hitler, Mussolini, and Imperial Japan. We now see the same magical thinking with our current neoconservative nationalist leadership. They were all ready to go to war against Iraq because they had WMD, weapons of mass destruction. This was an utter disregard of the fact that no such weapons had been found in Iraq despite a determined search. More than this, we were told that there was a connection between Saddam Hussein and the Al-Qaeda bombers of 9-11, though in fact there never had been, and there was never any real evidence that such a link existed. We were told that if we just went to war, we'd magically find it was all true. Despite 40 years of proving that reforming our tax code to favor a small class of super-rich results only in a shrinking middle class, rising numbers of homeless, and a less resilient economy, they've recently passed their third round of tax cuts for the super-rich. The neoconservative elite tells the faithful that though such tax cuts have only shrunk the middle class before, it will magically work this time. Such magical thinking is typical of end-dynasty leaders who are willing to act on what they hope is the case, not on hard evidence. Now we watch this generation as it is willing to leave their children in an economy that will force them to live in austerity. And why? Because they believe it's their right to live beyond their means and to have their children pay the price. When presented with incontrovertible evidence of the impact that global warming will have on their children, they shout, drill, baby, drill, and cheer on their president as he fights to resurrect a dying coal industry. There's little doubt. This generation would certainly charge forward full speed and increase the greenhouse gas content of our atmosphere at ever-increasing rates, rushing full speed toward the prodigal apocalypse that they have determined to bequeath their children and grandchildren. Unless checked, this is clearly a generation headed as quickly as they can towards some kind of end-dynasty event, as the 1-6 insurrectionists clearly showed. Is this our fate? Is this where we're headed? I don't think so. Remember, a dynasty in decline can turn their direction around to become a dynasty on the rise with good leadership. The reason I think this will happen is because of the axials. The true dangers of climate change were known by 1988. Very early on, the neoconservative propagandists began promoting climate denialism. The primary reason to fight climate change is to help people other than yourself, namely future generations. It's what Americans have always done. It's certainly what the Civil War and the Greatest Generation did. But it's definitely not what our current neoconservative elite does. They will benefit now by embracing climate denialism, not by adopting any kind of conservation measures that will raise the cost of energy. 
The neoconservative climate denialist movement is funded by massive infusions of contributions from the fossil fuel industrial complex. Rupert Murdoch's Fox News and the neoconservative radio talk shows are profitable in large part by advertising dollars that come from the fossil fuel industry. These funds would have dried up if these neoconservatives had not followed the climate denialism script of Exxon and other fossil fuel interests. If you're an Axial, cancel your subscription and turn off MSNBC, especially turn off Rachel Maddow. Stop watching that stuff. If you continue to fill your head with anger, anxiety, and derision of outgroups, you will remain permanently in a reactive aggression mode and will always have an us-versus-them mindset. It was the Axial's ability to overcome this mindset that led to the gay rights revolution. If, however, the Axials continued to follow the prodigal's lead of seeing the world in terms of us versus them, in following our teaching of reacting strongly with reactive aggression, the Axials will never find the unity they need to unite and stop climate change. Remember, it's going to be far more difficult to stop global warming following the Bush-Trump era of drill baby drill than it would have been if the U.S. had adopted the Paris Climate Accords when they were reached. We'll now take significant sacrifices, willingness to forego lifestyle preferences, and accept different standards of living to accomplish this. There will be many disagreements along the way. If the Axials have a mindset that's primed to act with reactive aggression, they'll see others who disagree with them as the other, as their enemy. They'll get bogged down in squabbles about who's right and who's wrong and develop animosities that people have experienced ever since Adam and Eve saw another troop of Homo sapiens approaching their watering hole. So, question number two, where is the outer wheel headed? Again, look to your historical drivers. As so often in history, the personality of the axials is the converse of the prodigals. The prodigals saw hypocrisy in their parents' racism and said, we're going to fight for civil rights for African Americans. We saw ourselves in contrast to our parents, not in harmony with their values. But we prodigals value individualism. An excessive belief in individualism and a few decades of grooming by Fox, Limbaugh, and other recipients of revenue from the fossil fuel industrial complex, meaning Exxon, the Koch brothers, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, and so on, has led us to believe one of our highest purposes is to perpetuate the fossil fuel economy. Yet Axials, like their parents before them, who in turn rejected the beliefs of their parents, have rejected the deep belief in individualism and what they see as unabashed selfishness that is the hallmark of baby prodigals. Unlike their parents, who are very happy to elect representatives who incur trillion-dollar-plus deficits every year and bequeath their children a future of financial austerity, they've learned to make sound financial decisions. They've forsaken their parents' lavish lifestyles for comfortable, modest lifestyles that are more akin to their grandparents or perhaps their great-grandparents of the greatest generation. If you talk to teachers about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, They'll tell you 
that when children are not getting their basic needs met, they won't learn. If a child comes to school hungry, they'll have no interest in learning. A similar kind of thing occurs on a national level. When nations are in great financial distress, such as Germany before World War II, people become concerned just about meeting their own needs. If our coming generation is under extreme financial distress, the chance that they will rise to meet the challenge and take fossil fuels out of our energy system will go down in proportion to the degree of financial distress they're going through. That's why it's imperative that the axials rise up immediately and demand responsible financial management of our government's budget and elect representatives who will make the changes that are necessary to begin to turn the tide on global warming. If serious measures are adopted now, the next generations can be spared the worst of the ravages of the twin plagues of climate change and financial disaster. It's up to these younger generations to rise up and make these changes, however. Remember our step number three in present historical analysis, expect black swans. The boomers don't see that reducing trillion-dollar-a-year budget deficits or reducing their carbon output is in their self-interest. The one thing that we've shown is that we're willing to borrow massive amounts of money so that we can live better now, even if that means for sure that our children will have to live in austerity later. Remember when I said if you don't look for black swans, they'll find you? Here's a black swan that should never be a black swan. All we have to do is open our eyes, but we don't. We prodigals just go on incurring trillion-dollar-plus deficits and thinking that there's no limit to the national debt that we can accumulate. Here's why I think the Axials will turn this around. And not just that they'll stand up and say that it's time to start making some changes, but that they will go on to make deep structural changes that will be necessary to assure a healthy functioning government in a thriving environment for their children and their children's children. We've seen the relentless march of history ever since Adam and Eve confronted their rival tribe at their watering hole. As we watched our 200 millennia history unfold, we've seen so many different variations on the same drama. We are born and are acculturated to our tribe. This is our in-group. We show great love and compassion for those in our in-group. We come into contact with another tribe, an out-group. We make up a story about this tribe. The story tells us how that tribe is antagonistic toward us. They're a threat to us and pose a danger to our tribe. We're slow to accept overtures of friendship from them and quick to respond to, often innocent, acts which we perceive as aggressive. This leads to discord and conflict with the other tribe. The conflict can be anything between disagreeable communications to all at war. It's the same story the history of the human race tells over and over again. The one continual note of change is that the size of our in-group and out-group tribes has continually become ever larger. We started with familial bands of perhaps 20 to 50. Over the millennia, with improvements to agriculture, irrigation, transportation, and all of the other systems that are necessary to allow towns, cities, states, and nations to function, our tribes became bigger and bigger. Finally, by the 1980s, we lived in a bipolar world, where there were only two superpowers, the United States 
in the Soviet Union, with populations of 250 million and 290 million, respectively. The Soviet Union fell in 1991, leaving only one superpower in the world. Though we should have recognized the import that this event had and taken steps to reduce world tensions and begin to move toward a world in which governments began to consciously move to minimize conflicts with other nations, i.e. their historical outgroups. By this time, we were well into the neoconservative era, however. Reagan had served his two terms in the White House. Rush Limbaugh had the largest national syndicated radio talk show, and other neoconservative voices were present in virtually every major market. The boomers were taking over, and we were making it clear that making the world safer through diplomacy was not what our agenda would be about. We boomers were engaging in our aggressive military policies. The invasion of Panama in 1989, our military involvement in the Balkan War in 1990, the first Gulf War in 1991, and our military involvement in Somalia with the famous Black Hawk Down episode in 1993. Then came 9-11. Not only did that lead to the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, the longest war in American history, but the George W. Bush neoconservative announcement that there was a global war on terror, a war that was never defined, but allowed Republican neoconservative governments to intervene militarily anywhere on the globe they decided to, under the justification that it was part of the war on terror. Meanwhile, as prodigals were engaged in our hawkish foreign policy, our children were growing up. Their formative growing up years were very different than the prodigals. They'd been online pretty much their whole lives. To my prodigal generation, Russians were a threat. They were locked behind an iron curtain, and we could no more talk to one of them than we could to the man on the moon. Worse, we were only a button push away from a thermonuclear war with Russia. People in the prodigal generation grew up fearing nuclear war. When we were kids, we participated in duck and cover drills at school in case a nuclear bomb should go off nearby. I knew people who had bomb shelters to protect them in case of a nuclear attack. This wasn't unusual at the time. Russians were Cold War enemies to be feared. The same can be said for all communist countries. It was certainly true for the Chinese, who were referred to as Red Chinese if they came from mainland China, to distinguish them from good democratic Chinese who lived in Hong Kong. This was certainly not the case for millennials. If millennials desired communications with Russians, it was certainly possible electronically, although most millennials probably didn't carry on an electronic correspondence with an English-speaking Russian child. The fact that it would have been possible may have made a large difference. A population locked behind an impenetrable iron curtain, with their finger poised on the nuclear Armageddon button, is inevitably seen as an outgroup. A Russian population that was not seen as a military threat and could be contacted if desired was not seen as an outgroup to the axial generations. The same can be said of the Chinese. The prodigal's great Cold War enemies were no longer viewed as outgroups for our younger generations then. This gets us to our step four in our present historical analysis. 
regression to the mean. We prodigals definitely took our antagonism of communist outgroups to extremes, but this just isn't an issue with the Axials. They grew up in a different world. These generations were the only generations in human history to grow up with no nation that posed a military threat to them. Though the attacks of 9-11 were terrible and no American would minimize them, they can't be compared to Pearl Harbor as they sometimes are. Pearl Harbor was an all-out attack by another country's military, an enemy with a very real ability to attack and conquer a major portion of U.S. territory. This, of course, happened in conjunction with Germany's declaration of war against us. And while Al-Qaeda would have theoretically been able to conduct another surreptitious attack on an American target, they could never have invaded American territory with the intent to conquer it, as Germany and Japan theoretically could have. Although millennials experienced 9-11, they learned very quickly that Al-Qaeda had been decimated. It was just not a foreign threat they grew up fearing. When the younger Bush attempted to make Iraq into an enemy, it eventually became clear that Iraq never had the weapons of mass destruction that had been the pretext for the war, and that the whole war had been a neoconservative excuse to find an enemy and go to war. For our younger generations, there's just no great foreign enemy that posed an existential threat to the U.S., and for all of CNN's empty warnings that the war on terror posed such a threat, the Axials have largely seen these empty warnings for what they truly are. The irony, of course, here is that the first generations in the history of the world not to face any kind of existential military threat now face humanity's first global existential climate threat. Why is it I feel this generation will be the generation that will overcome the threats that my generation is leaving them? For the reasons we spoke about last episode, the Axials have rejected the boomers' individualistic, look-out-for-number-one, me-first worldview, and have adopted a much more communitarian view of humanity. That the times now demand that they step up, and tough times require tough people a call I believe the Axials will respond to, and their interconnectedness with Axials through the web, along with their deeper sense of compassion, will lead them to hear the call. As I've mentioned, for a time in my prior life, I did some work in dispute resolution. As every mediator knows, there's a dynamic that's set up when people are in dispute. If one party assumes a negative posture, assumes the other party will not negotiate in good faith, is distrustful, and believes the other party will try to take advantage, this creates the same posture and negative attitude in the other party. Now both parties are approaching the negotiations negatively. When this happens, it's a pretty good bet that the discussions will go south. The converse is also true. When people approach negotiations with a positive attitude toward the other party, assume the best of them, and negotiate in an open, generous manner, people pretty uniformly respond in kind. These are discussions that have a high likelihood of success. The prodigals have approached international relations with the former attitude since the days of Ronald Reagan. In fact, if you do an internet search for neoconservative, you'll get definitions that include things like a belief in peace through strength and a belief in interventionist foreign policies. 
In an era of great prosperity, and the U.S.'s only serious military threat, the USSR, fell, this neoconservative, militaristic, interventionist approach to foreign relations brought us not only our country's longest war in Afghanistan, but an unnecessary war in Iraq, in which both of the two justifications the American people were given turned out to be false. Iraq neither had ties to the 9-11 terrorists, nor WMD. Rash and unnecessary wars are what happens when we're motivated by reactive aggression. Axials, however, have different motivations. The neoconservative voices that fuel the neoconservative reactive aggression mindset don't speak to our coming generations. The median age of the average Fox News listener is 68 years old. This is squarely in the middle of the prodigal demographic. They're overwhelmingly white and Republican. The younger generations are not attracted to their messages of fearing those who don't look, worship, or think like us. Axials are not motivated by fear of outsiders, largely because they don't view the world as full of dangerous outsiders as their parents do. So I expect that we'll be witnessing a regression to the mean in coming years, a swing of the political pendulum back to a more liberal viewpoint. Though it must be noted there's a short-term danger for us, and that the Democrats' hold on political power is razor-thin in the Senate and less than 4% in the House of Representatives. Given the general trend that a governing party tends to lose seats in Congress in the midterm elections, our short-term outlook may look disconcerting. However, the stakes have never been higher. In the social science world, it's well known that we fear people as dangerous outgroups the further we're distanced from them. It was easier for a generation of white children who grew up only around other white children to fear blacks, immigrants, and Muslims. This wasn't the case with the axial generations. Now that most children go to school in diverse districts, far more often children just see no meaningful difference in race or beliefs. People don't see their schoolmates and friends as outgroups. In addition to growing up in a world where diversity is the norm, they grew up in a much more globalized world. For young adults, the axial generations, other young adults from Iraq, Guatemala, or Russia, just aren't threatening outsiders. They're all part of the same world, fighting against the same problems of climate change that they've inherited. There's something that happens when people talk to others they don't fear. They collaborate and axials are well known for working collaboratively. Unfortunately, the axial generations will be saddled with the environmental and economic burdens that we have discussed in this podcast. The debt with which prodigals have chosen to saddle our children with will cause them the constant stress of austerity, just as our parents provided us with an affordable system of higher education we've chosen to provide our children with an incredibly expensive university system with no other way to pay for it than to incur so much debt that entry into the middle class will be difficult for many of them. This is the same middle class life that we prodigals have always taken for granted. While the axials are under the stress, they'll have to deal with the climate crises and disruptions that we've talked about that'll be the inevitable result of our current prodigal climate policies. When the prodigal generation found itself under stress during the 9-11 attacks, our response was to respond with fear and emotion. 
The result was to mar ourselves in a war against Afghanistan that we couldn't get out of, and to declare a war against Iraq, a country that had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. Why do I think the axial generations won't react as we did? The distinguishing factor of the prodigal generation is our lack of emotional intelligence. If you don't believe me, turn on Fox News or listen to old Rush Limbaugh shows. The draw of all these news choices is that they appeal to our limbic emotions, fear, anger, hate, or disdain of outgroups. There are many news choices that we could turn to, but prodigals have chosen to largely feed our negative emotions. Axials, on the other hand, are well noted for their emotional intelligence and mindfulness. They've approached their lives with introspection and mindfulness that the prodigals have lacked. When foreign crises have developed, we prodigals have responded with reactive aggression and a military option. With axials, their approach appears to be far more mindful and well-reasoned. This is because they're more emotionally intelligent than their parents. When you add the fact that they no longer see those of other colors, beliefs, and nationalities as outgroups, their chance of responding to crises with the reactive aggression of their parents is significantly reduced. Their emotional intelligence, lack of reactive aggression, and compassionate nature will incline them to work collaboratively with other countries and peoples, who they'll see as collaborators, not outgroups. So, our step number five in our historical analysis is the outer wheel of history poised to take a more compassionate turn? I'd say yes, it is. Finally, to reiterate, the axial generations don't have the luxury of waiting. They will experience economic austerity and environmental degradation. The question is, will they be proactive and make the sacrifices necessary to limit their pain to the economic austerity and environmental degradation that is now inevitable? Or will they continue with life as it is and suffer the more severe problems that await them if they continue the fiscal and climate denialism of the prodigals? American history shows that there are generations who rise up when the time calls for them. Our founding fathers were a generation dubbed by Thomas Jefferson an assembly of demigods. This self-aggrandizing description perhaps overlooks some of their minor peccadillos like slaveholding, but has resonated throughout history. As this generation defeated one of the greatest empires the world has ever known at the height of its power and created the first, longest-lasting democracy of the modern world, this is an accomplishment that few generations would have ever been able to claim. When it became clear that the South would not join the rest of the civilized world and abolish slavery, a generation led by Abraham Lincoln rose up and made the greatest sacrifice our country has ever made at the time to defeat the South in the Civil War. It saved the Union and abolished slavery. In 1939, a generation rose up to overcome the original America Firsters, mobilized the entire country, joined World War II, and defeated global fascism. Interspersed with these extraordinary generations have been generations that well deserve to live in infamy. President Rutherford B. Hayes, following the Civil War, led a generation that stopped Reconstruction, allowed the worst of the KKK and other racist tendencies of the South to thrive, 
Prior to the Civil War, the U.S. had several generations that were unable to mount any effective opposition to slavery, the worst moral blight our country has ever known. Our country sat back passively while Andrew Jackson forcibly removed perhaps 100,000 Native Americans from their ancestral homelands to what was then known as Indian Territory, killing an estimated 15,000 Native Americans in the process. What are the historical drivers the Axials now face? No significant existential threat from any other warring outgroup. Instead, they face the threat of devastating financial collapse should we continue on our current course of large annual federal deficits and climate degradation that could, in the end, lead to a worldwide runaway greenhouse effect and massive worldwide climate disasters. change on the Axial's watch. Climate change will assure that one way or the other. Will the Axial's follow our lead and drive the world further into chaos and disaster? Or will they rise up like the greatest generation and other generations that have overcome the great challenges of their day? They're collaborative, socially connected, compassionate, financially responsible, understand the dangers of global warming, lack the kind of reactive aggression that has motivated the prodigal generation, and, for the first time in history, they don't see other peoples as outgroups. The challenges that we prodigals will bequeath them will force them into deep consideration of which course they will chart. They'll use tools of collaboration and compassion that they know, just as their parents use the tools of self-interest and reactive aggression that they knew. We've seen the wonders of how chaos and dynamic systems combine to create history's greatest achievements and its greatest horrors. So, to the Axials, I say, this is so much more than the fight to save our planet. You will do that if you hear the call and rise up to your destiny. It's also the third axis the point in history where we realize that for all these millennia, we've been trapped by our age-old tendency to see a world of us and them, to see a world where we're surrounded by dangerous outgroups. All of history's wars, whether they've been wars of conquest, like Genghis Khan, or Germany and Japan in World War II, wars the leaders in charge just stumbled into, because of their reactive aggression like World War I, or wars intentionally caused by the reactive aggression of major powers like the Iraq War, have been caused by humankind's propensity toward reactive aggression and our in-group versus out-group worldview. The point is that, for the first time in human history, we're beginning to realize that we're all in this together. We're just at the beginning of this realization. But Greta Thunberg has made it. She was first over the wall. She made it into the United Nations and made her declaration within the halls of world power. She won't be the last. This challenge we have before us will require us 
to all work together because we're only going to stop climate change and save our environment when we do. This brings up the question we asked in the first episode. When did we become fully human? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines humanity as compassionate, sympathetic, or generous behavior or disposition, the quality or state of being humane. Our history, the era of history that we've been following throughout this podcast, has been teleological all along. That is, that ever since the beginning of the Homo sapien race, it's been headed for a particular end, which is that we will ultimately overcome our reactive aggression and move past our in-group, out-group paradigm. And when we do, when we prove that cooperation with other nations is superior to aggression, in subsequent centuries and millennia, when humans look back on history, they'll say, these two generations are the axis on which humanity turned. This is when we became fully human. This is Brad Brown. It's been quite a journey, but thank you for taking it with me. A special thank you to my wife, editor, collaborator, and voice of our opening vignettes, Alice Barnes-Brown, and also to all of our voice actors, Miara Simpson, Lauren Chu, Deborah Elizabeth M., Evan Hempstead, and Katya Horde. I'm going to take a bit of a break now, but watch for me later in January or in February on my YouTube channel. Just do a YouTube search for Nearest Fiddle. Thank you.